This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. We hit a milestone here uh, today, and I'm, I'm excited that you're here for this major milestone in our study of the book of Philippians. Last year, our theme for 2020 was Magnified Jesus. We started going verse by verse through the book of Philippians, and we have finally, halfway through 2021, made it to the end of chapter three. Like, yeah, you should clap for that. That's big. Uh, you might not even know what that means, but it's big. Um, there's only four chapters in Philippians, which technically means we're 75% of the way. How about that, right? It only took us a year and a half to make it, but we're making it. And so uh, way to go for that. Uh, but here's what we're going to do in our study of Philippians. We've been going again verse by verse through the book of Philippians. If you missed anything so far, you got 54 messages, I think it is, to, to get caught up on. Uh, but what we're doing this week is at the end of today's message, we're going to hit pause on this Magnified Jesus series. Starting next Sunday, we're going to start a new series on fear entitled Fear Less. We're going to take an eight-week study of what the Bible says, fear and faith, and what that means to our lives. Uh, we're going to take an eight-week uh, pause on Magnify Jesus and study that. Then we're going to go back to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to finish out Philippians chapter 4, if the Lord is willing, and I believe he's willing. Uh, we're going to finish out the book of Philippians, right about time for about Thanksgiving uh, time frame, a Christmas mini-series, and then a brand new series in 2022. You say, 2022, Pastor, we're halfway through July at this point, folks. And so this, this year's cooking right along. And so we got a plan. We know where we're going with this. So be here next week as we take a look at uh, our new series entitled Fear Less. And so I'm really excited about that. But today, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in uh, verse number, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse number 13 probably. Yeah, 13. We're really going to spend our time today uh, parsing through verses 20 and 21. But we'll start in verse number 13 just to give you a little bit of context. The book of Philippians was written to the church at Philippi by the Apostle Paul. It was a church that he had started on his second missionary journey. It's the first church that he ever started in Europe. Uh, Philippi would have been in South Greece. Uh, he started a church there from scratch on his second missionary journey. He left uh, and continued his missionary work. He finds himself about 10 years later in prison and writes a letter back to them. Uh, sometimes we refer to Philippians as part of Paul's prison epistles or prison letters uh, that he wrote. And so he wrote a letter really of encouragement. We don't find any sharp rebuke, no correction for false teaching. He's not upset with anybody. Uh, he's just encouraging them, hey, you've done a great job with the gospel so far. Keep going. Take it to the next level. Keep pushing forward. Uh, and so it's really just a, a letter of encouragement that he writes to them. We find ourselves in verse number 13 uh, this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verse number 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal it unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Verse 17, brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as you have us for an example. For many walk, as I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Last week we took a look at this, verses 18 and 19, how there are some who call themselves Christians, but their lives don't back it up. 
And then there are some who call themselves Christians who aren't actually saved at all. They just adopt the name of Jesus. And how do we identify those? Verse number 19 tells us whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned unto like his glorious body according to the working whereby he's able even unto subdue all things unto himself. I don't know about you, but uh, I have a sweet tooth. I, I love sweets. It doesn't really matter what kind of sweets they are or what time of day it is. I love sweet stuff. As a kid, I wasn't, uh, my mom was really big on dental health, and so I wasn't allowed as a kid to eat sweet cereal. And so uh, any, if, it, if any cereal had sugar in it, we weren't allowed to eat it in our house. No Fruit Loops, no Frosted Flakes, no, uh, no even Honey Nut Cheerios, right? It was like plain Cheerios, Crispex, Special K, Corn Flakes. But what my mom didn't know is when she wasn't around, I would go into the cabinet and get a scoop of sugar and put that on my cereal. It's like, ha-ha, I got you. Uh, so I'm confessing my sin before you today. Um, but one of the things that I absolutely loved as a kid growing up that carried on over into my adult years, kind of a guilty pleasure, is you talk, pour yourself a big, tall glass of ice-cold milk and get yourself a stack of fresh Oreo cookies and get yourself a spoon at the ready. I don't know if you know what's going to happen next. You put your Oreo cookies in there. You let them soak for a while. They hit a point of peak saturation where it's just enough of the cookie that's mushy, but it's not too mushy that it falls apart inside your, your, your glass, and you scoop it out and you eat it. Oh, man. I pass that guilty pleasure on to my boys, and just a big, tall glass of milk is what you always start with. Now, 2% milk is where it's at, right? How many are like the red cap, full strength, all milk? If that's you, raise your hand. You guys are bold, bold, bold. It's like drinking thick motor oil flavored milk. And so uh, that's, that's, how many of our two percenters there? How many are milk flavored water at skim milk? <laughs> how many of you, no milk, all plant-based almond soy and everything else? Wow, look at you guys, fake milk drinkers, right? I love it. How many, no milk at all? No, none whatsoever of any type or sort? Everybody's got to have a little bit of milk. Okay, uh, but... Uh, Tall glass, 2% fresh Oreo cookies. So my wife and I, we were newlyweds and we just got married and got home from work one day and she said, they had a sale at Walmart on, on Oreo cookies and she said, I bought three boxes. Three boxes? Like, where did I find a woman after my own heart? Like, I married way above my pay grade, which I already knew when I got married. Uh, but this woman who I who had been married to for like weeks at this point, bought three boxes of cookies uh, at, at Walmart. Like, she knows my heart. And so the whole time I'm eating dinner, I'm thinking to myself, Oreos, milk, and a spoon. Oreos, milk, and a spoon. Dessert, like whatever I'm eating for dinner, I don't know what it is because dessert's coming, and it's going to be glorious. I can't wait. And so, uh, anyways, I, I chow down on my food, and I go to the cabinet, and I open up the cabinet, and there's no Oreos there. Sweetheart, where are the Oreos? She said, they're on the top shelf of the pantry. No, they're not. And she says, look again. They're on the top shelf. I'm looking all around. There's no Oreo cookies in this pantry at all. I mean, they're distinctive. Big blue package, big black cookie on the front, you know. And like at this point, I don't know, are they regular Oreos? Are they double stuff? Are they mega stuff? Like, I'm just, the anticipation's killing me. Now, somebody put together an abomination known as Oreo Thins. Have you seen these? They're of the devil, like the cookie itself is like wafer thin 
and there's like this little film of cream underneath and then a wafer thin cookie and so it's supposed to be thin. It's just like you have to eat four times as many of those to get what you get out of a normal cookie. Like terrible idea. Uh, but I'm thinking to myself, what do we get? What, what kind of Oreos are they? And, and I said, sweetheart, they're not in here. And she says, if it was a snake, it would bite you. And I said, well, then you're going to have to come show me where they're at. And she goes over to the cabinet, and she pulls out a box of great value chocolate sandwich cookies. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> These are Oreos. These are not Oreos, sweetheart. These are chocolate sandwich cookies, which I don't even know what that means. And she was like, it's the same thing. Sweetheart, come to the table. We're going to have a sit down and talk about life, you know. Chocolate wafer cookies are not Oreos. They're not the same, like not even remotely the same. And she was like, well, they were on sale. I know they were because nobody buys these things. Like that's why they're on sale, right? And so we had a big, long conversation that night that chocolate wafer cookies and Oreo cookies, not the same thing. (laughs) Paul in this passage says, Christians who call themselves Christians but live differently are not the same as real Christians. Sometimes people confuse the two because they may look similar, may have a similar vocabulary, maybe even adopt the same label, but they're not the same. And so Paul says, here's how you tell the difference. Verse number 19, he says, these people, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they mind the things of this world. But for us that are real Christians, we're different. He says in verse number 20, our conversation is in heaven. We'll take a look at what that means in just a moment. And sometimes people who maybe are new to who we call a, uh, can say things like, well, how can you be so sure that you're the real Christians and not the fake Christians? That's a great question. I don't get to make the determination whether or not I'm a valid Christian or not. The Bible will do that for me. I don't get the determination to figure out whether our church is a true biblical church or not. The Bible does that for us. And the Bible spells out guidelines on what a church looks like. It's made up of saved, baptized individuals, and it's led appropriately by the appropriate type of uh, authority structure that God outlines in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And, and it's a group of people that are gathered together for the sake of the gospel and the pursuing of the Great Commission uh, to go in, baptize, teach, and things along those lines. But how do we know that we're really Christians? And some people would say, well, if you self-identify as Christian, that makes you a Christian. Not necessarily. I can self-identify as a lot of things that I'm not. But what does the Bible identify me as? The Bible tells us that we're all born into this world at odds with God. Sometimes people think, well, we're all God's children. God created all of us and we're all God's children. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're the children of wrath, we're the children of disobedience, and we're the children of the devil. And so you and I are not born into the family of God. You and I are born, Romans chapter 5 says, as the enemies of God. So we can't come to God as our father when he's not really our father. We can't go to heaven when our citizenship is not in heaven. Our citizenship is of this world. We cannot come to God in prayer uh, to a God who is our enemy. And so we have to make that right with God. And so God says in Romans chapter uh, 6 that the wages of sin is death. The way that you can make things right with God is to pay the penalty of your sin. And the penalty of your sin is death. It doesn't mean we're all just going to physically die. It means a spiritual death after our physical death. Uh, The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. That every single person, when we take our last breath here on planet Earth, will stand face to face with God Almighty and will be judged according to what we did with Jesus. 
If you've accepted Christ as Savior, your name is written in the book of life. If you've not received Christ as Savior, your name is not written in the book of life, and you'll be judged based on that book and that book alone. So, you can pay for your penalty of your sin by spending eternity separated from God in hell. That's the second death that the Bible speaks of. So you can be judged for your sin, sent to hell, and that will settle things up with God, but there's no second chances after hell. You'll spend eternity there. That's a terrible way to spend your eternity. I don't want you to die and go to hell. God doesn't want you to die and go to hell. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God wants to provide another way for you to make things right with him. But the bottom line is somebody has to die. Now, you can die for your sins, but I can't die for your sins because I have my own sin debt that I have to pay. No church can die for your sins because churches don't do stuff like that. And any church that tells you that they can forgive your sins or any church that can provide salvation or forgiveness for your sins isn't a biblical church to begin with. There's nobody, there's not enough religious works that you could do to wash away your sins. You could be baptized in every body of water in the world and never wash away your sins because somebody has to die. So the person who would die in your place has to be without sin themselves, has to owe God nothing, and has to be perfect. There's only one person that could do that, and his name was Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus died in my place. I was supposed to endure God's punishment. Jesus was punished for me. I was supposed to take the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath of God for me. I was supposed to pay for my sin. Jesus paid for my sin on my behalf. And it requires, the only thing it requires for me is faith and repentance. I have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I have to believe that He died for my sins. I have to believe that my sin before Jesus was going to send me to hell. And I have to believe that Jesus is the only way. If you're willing to do that, you can be saved or born again. You can't make it to heaven apart from being born again. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse number 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You need to be saved. And friend, if you're here today and there's never been a time, a date, a place in your life that you've been saved or born again, your citizenship is not in heaven. God is not your father. You are not part of the family of God. You're an enemy of God. You're a child of wrath, a child of disobedience. You will, when you die, not go to heaven. You will go to hell because you have not been saved. Not because you're not a part of this church or because you haven't joined a church, not because you haven't been baptized, because you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's the only hope that you and I have. But once you receive Christ as Savior, once you're born again, and it's a one-time event, uh, one time, a date, a place where you accept Christ as Savior and you're born again, you become a new creature, you become adopted into the family of God. You get a new birth certificate. You're now a child of God. God is your father. Christ, the Bible says, is our joint heir or our brother. That We have a totally new outlook on life now. Now we get a new citizenship, and our citizenship is now in heaven. Take a look in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 20. It says, for our conversation is in heaven. The word conversation is unique when it's used in the Bible. And when the word conversation is used, it's never used the way that you and I would think to have a conversation with another person or uh, words that we, we, a dialogue that we go back and forth with. That's not what the word conversation means. If you've got your Bible open to Philippians, go a few pages back to Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27. <laughs> Paul's writing to the church of Philippi here telling them that their lifestyle should back up the gospel. 
In this case here, the word conversation is used again. This, this case, it means the lifestyle or your testimony or when other people look at your life, what do they see? Verse number 27, Philippians 1. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Live your life in a way that points people to the gospel. That whether I come see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel. If we turn over to Philippians chapter 3, verse number 20, we see that word again, for your conversation is in heaven. In this case, it's not necessarily your testimony or the way that you live your life. Another word that can be used to substitute conversation in verse 20 is the word citizenship. For your citizenship is in heaven. And that takes on a whole new meaning. Verse number 19 talks about fake Christians, phony Christians, who claim the name of Christ but live in opposition to the Bible, opposition to the gospel. But for those of us who are the real deal, and you're saying, does every person that attend who we call, are they the real deal? I don't know that. I really don't. I believe that there's people here that are not saved. There's people at every church in America that are not saved. That maybe wear the label of Christian or self-identified as Christian but never actually been born again. I know for a fact in every church in America, and this church included, there's people who have been saved and born again who don't live in accordance to the Scripture. That's why every single week I challenge you to live a life that points people to the gospel and makes Jesus look good. But when we think about our citizenship being in heaven, I began to think about how that relates to our life on a day-to-day basis and how being a citizen of the United States gives us certain privileges and gives us certain things that we hold to. So does our citizenship being in heaven give us a kind of a framework to work from. As we look through this passage this morning, we see, first of all, that as citizens of heaven, we have a higher authority. As citizens of the United States of America, we have an authority in the President of the United States. Whether or not you agree with the President of the United States or you voted for him or agree with his politics, doesn't really matter. The Bible commands you to pray for those that are in authority. And so I hope you pray for your President every single day. Every single day on my personal prayer list, I pray for our President, I pray for our Governor, I pray for our Mayor. I have a a laundry list of political things that I would love to talk to each one of these men about, uh, that I don't like about decisions that they made or things that they've done wrong and things like that. Doesn't matter. I'm commanded to pray for them. And I pray for them that they'll be saved and that they'll follow God's wisdom as they lead. Simple as that. Doesn't matter what you think about them, who you voted for, anything like that. The Bible commands you to pray for them. But my authority for, for my life, I don't place fully in politicians because the best of politicians always have an agenda of some sort. And so they're not my final authority. For you and I, we have a higher authority. And I never thought that we would see this tested really as much as we have in the last uh, 12 months, you know, and the fact that uh, we had 12 weeks where we, we were uh, shut down as a church, where we had online-only services, where we uh, didn't gather in person because we were trying to do our part to flatten the curve and be a good neighbor and be a good steward and things like that. But as we came towards the end of that 12 weeks, we had uh, had a meeting with several of the men in our church and kind of decided, hey, look, there's, there's not an immediate threat any longer, and those that want to gather should be able to gather. And so we're going to start having church services really soon in the next couple of weeks. And then we got the green light from the government who said that we could actually, the local government who said we could actually meet under certain qualifications and guidelines. And even with those, we've taken with a grain of salt. Uh, when we were told we could gather back in the, in the month of June of last year, they told us that you could gather together, but no singing. 
Well, the Bible commands us when we gather together to praise the Lord. And so we're not going to obey a directive that says you cannot sing when the Bible says when you gather together, you must sing. And so then, okay, if you must sing, and still to this day, if you must sing in a a gathering like this, there must be plexiglass between every single singer and six feet of distance. Now, can you imagine how big of an auditorium we would need if we're going to put plexiglass up for every single person uh, and put six feet between every person as well? to this day, I'm, I'm not going to say anything about it, but to this day, there's still a mask mandate for gatherings inside right now. Um, but at some point, we have to say, hey, look, at the end of the day, we're going to trust Jesus and, and allow you to make your own decisions and, and be a big boy and be a big girl and make a decision that's best for your family. But at the end of the day, we don't answer necessarily to uh, our local government. We want to obey the laws of the lands as best as we can. But at the end of the day, we answer to Jesus. And look, if I get a, a $500 fine for singing on a Sunday morning, I'll, I'll just pay it. Praise the Lord. Because at the end of the day, we don't necessarily answer to that authority. We have a higher authority. Now, this is being tested even to a greater degree in North America. I don't know if you've been watching the news, but uh, pastors in Canada are actually being thrown in jail for having church services. And I think just this past week, the final uh, pastor in Canada was released from jail. But they've been meeting like on farms, not like in their church buildings, like out on farms uh, they've been meeting and being arrested for it and police shutting it down. I never thought I'd see that happen in North America. I mean, we think of like China and stuff like that happening, but, but it's happening now. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, everybody has to agree we don't necessarily have to obey the government when it causes us to disobey God. If, if the government says, you guys can't gather together, well, the Bible commands us to gather together. We've got to do it one way or the other. And so at the end of the day, you and I don't necessarily have to take our marching orders from the government. We take them from Jesus. Now, it doesn't give us the right to disobey the law. The Bible commands us to obey the laws of the land. It doesn't mean that I can drive 85 on the freeway because I'm, uh, I obey Jesus instead of, you know, the HPD. I got a parking ticket this past week, and I'm so mad about it. I'm going to fight it. But... Um, <laughs> Has nothing to do with today's message. It just, uh, but I can't write a letter and say, "Oh, I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't, I don't, you know, obey your parking laws that you have." But when it comes down to, I obey Jesus or I obey government, the Bible says we obey Jesus instead. You know, the apostles were commanded in Jerusalem, "Stop preaching." They said, "We can't." They said, "We're going to throw you in jail." Okay, then throw us in jail, and they did because they were preaching the gospel. So for you and I, when it comes to authority. Jesus Christ is our highest authority. Again, if we take a look at verse number um, 20, for our conversation is in heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord literally means master there. Keep your finger here in Philippians. We're going to come back in a sec. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 22. Now, it's, it's interesting to note, in the Bible, there's several different words that are translated, probably three different words that are translated for the word servant. Uh, the most commonly used uh, word in the New Testament that's used for the word servant uh, is the word diakonos. Where diakonos is where we get our word, uh, English word deacon. Diakonos basically means just a, a servant or a waiter, like one who serves tables, one who uh, basically waits on other people and provides for their needs and serves in that way. That's the Greek word diakonos. The word that's used in this, this passage here and the way that it's translated in almost every single English uh, version of the Bible is the Greek word doulos, and the word doulos literally means slave, one with no rights, one with no ability to own property, uh, one with no ability to answer for themselves, 
basically lower than low. They just do what they're told. And in this passage here, the word doulos is used, which we could substitute the word servant here for the word slave. It's also the same word that in, in Philippians chapter 2, where it says Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. That word servant literally means slave. So Jesus himself made himself a slave to God the Father as his master. So verse number 22, when he uses the word servant here, we could also use the word slave instead. For he that is called, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22, for he that is called in the Lord being a servant or slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Here's the idea. You're set free from your sin, your slavery to sin, to be free in Christ. But when you're free in Christ, you're automatically a slave to Christ. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's actually a really, really good thing. So Paul's not meaning this in a negative connotation. It's actually in a positive sense. Because know this, you will always be under authority. Always. In this case here, in a spiritual sense, you can be a slave to your sin or you can be a slave to Jesus. Your choice totally up to you. But the idea that I'm just going to be free to do what I want is not a biblical idea at all. You can say, oh, I'll be free to do what I want. Then you're a slave to your sin. And your sin runs the show. But if you're a slave to Christ, Jesus is master. He calls the shots. He runs the show. I just do what I'm told. But you're always under authority. You can choose to be under authority to your sin, or you can choose to be under authority to Jesus, and I would choose Jesus. And if you read through Romans chapter 6, it's a beautiful, beautiful discourse that Paul says, hey, you get a choice to choose who you yield to. You've been set free from sin, so you don't have to serve that sin any longer. Now you've been set free to Christ, and now you get the opportunity to choose to serve Christ. And so we think of authority. God is our ultimate authority because our citizenship is in heaven. Go back to uh, Philippians chapter 3, if you would. Philippians chapter 2, probably one page previous to where our passage is. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 9. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. The, the, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, if, you, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, then you would call Jesus Christ not only your Savior, but also your Lord. We sometimes refer, refer to him as Lord Jesus Christ. And so that means that he's the master, I'm the slave, he calls the shots, he's an authority, he's the boss. I simply do what the master tells me to do if Jesus Christ is truly Lord. And you, have, you and I have chosen, if you're a child of God, to allow Jesus Christ to run your life. Allow him to be the loving master to us, his willing servants and slaves. You've chosen to do that. But the Bible says there'll come a point at the throne of God where every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those that have rejected the name of Jesus here on this earth, they'll bow one day. Those that refuse to bow a knee to Jesus Christ and, allow, and refuse to allow his lordship right now, they'll bow one day, the Bible says, here in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 9, there's coming a day where every knee will bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now mind you, this confession 
for unbelievers, those who die without Christ, those who die in their sin, when they go to heaven and they stand before God, before God's judgment at the great white throne judgment, they will kneel, they will bow, they will confess Jesus Christ as Lord right before they're whisked away to hell to suffer in everlasting wrath and judgment. But they'll confess, guaranteed. But you and I have the privilege to personally, willingly, lovingly confess Jesus Christ as Lord. He is our authority because our citizenship is in heaven. But not only do we have a higher authority, we also have a different value system than the world. Jesus, in his most lengthy discourse throughout all the, the Gospels, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible where you'll see a lot of red ink in your Bible is in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and 6. We sometimes refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives, man, a, an incredible uh, sermon that he gives here. Incredible discourse on life. And I, I can only imagine what got recorded in Scripture is so rich, so powerful, so life-changing. Can you imagine sitting and hearing Jesus, the Word incarnate, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the Word of God, as it's being preached? Like, man, I don't, their, their ears must have been blown back. Like, just like, wah, mouth agape, like, just in awe of the Word of God expounding the Word of God. It's so good. But here's what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse number 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 automatically explodes the idea of materialism in the life of a Christian. You can't do it. This world and the treasure that it has, not for us, not for us Christians. There's times before I confess, and the times that I've done it, my wife's always been hasty to correct me. We'll be sitting in a red light, and some guy will pull up in a smoking hot car. There's a guy that drives around here, I don't, I don't know, like, his car is monster green, like, the most repulsive, disgusting green that you could, like, like the can, uh, can of monster green. But it's a Lamborghini. And like when I, he drives, it's just like, ooh, I didn't know that car, that color could be that pretty on a car like that. It was gorgeous. Man, just last night, I was, I was driving down uh, Pensacola Street. There were Pensacola meets uh, King Street. There was a yellow Ferrari that pulled up there. It's just like, ooh. But there's been a couple of times in my life where I've seen some guy pull up in a smoking hot car, and I look over and I say, man, that guy made it. Look at that. You're doing it, man. Like, thumbs up to you, dude. You did it. And my wife is like, he did what? He's like winning at life. And she goes, based on what? Based on the fact that he drives a nice car? But, yeah. And she was like, first of all, you don't even know if it's his car. Second of all, I'm sure it's not paid for. Third of all, can you imagine what the insurance is like on that? And I was just like, don't kill the vibe. Like, the dude made it. Just let, it, let him enjoy his moment, you know? But then I think to myself, I'm making a judgment whether or not somebody's made it on life based on the type of car that they drive on a Saturday night at 7 o'clock at a red light on the street? That's not making it according to our value system. 
Not according to our citizenship being in heaven. We got a different value system. We value virtue, not things. I don't look at a guy that drives a car like that and go, man, that dude made it in life. I look at the guy that loves his wife the way that Jesus loves the church, and I go, that dude's making it. That guy's doing it. I see the guy who used to be living for the world and living for himself, now he's living for Jesus and leading his family to do so. I say, that guy's made it. I look for the couple that's been married for a couple of decades and still love each other like crazy and still love Jesus and want to serve Jesus. Man, they made it. They're making it. They're doing it. Because we value virtue, not things. What do we value? We value Christ's likeness. That's what Paul valued. Paul in this passage says, hey, if anybody's mature, let them think like we think. That we want to pursue, we want to press forward to the mark of the prize of the high calling that's in Christ Jesus. The thing we're pushing forward for is to be like Jesus. Those are the people that are making it. That's the value that there is to be had. We don't value the things that the world has. We value virtue. If you ever wondering like what we as Christians should value, we value spiritual things. The fruit of the Spirit's a good place to start. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We value love. We value joy. We value peace. We value long-suffering. We value goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance. We value those things. We don't value money and a big car and a fancy education and worldly certifications or how big your 401k is or how much money you got in retirement or the last vacation that you took and your amazing photos that you have. We don't value your platform that you've created on social media. We value things that are unattainable without the help of Christ. Anybody can drive a fancy car. You be impressed by that? Not everybody can train up their kids to follow Jesus. I'm impressed by that. Not everybody can choose to love another sinner for the rest of their lives and give their life for that other sinner. That's called marriage. Not everybody can do that. I value that. Why? Because we use a different value system. I was talking about it with somebody this past week who has a family member who's not saved, and they said, how do I deal with this situation? Hey, you explain to them, here are my values as a Christian, and I understand that you do not value the same things that I do, but I'm asking you to respect my values. Because the things that I value are way different than the things that you value. But I need you to respect this. Because Christians, real Christians I'm talking about, not the Christians that he talks about in verse number 19 who do their own thing, whose God is their belly, who mind the things of this world. Real Christians, he says, we, don't, we got a totally different value system that this world doesn't understand. That where do I want to be when I'm, when I'm you know, 60? It's not an address it's not a how big my house is. It's not about how much money's in my account. I want to be serving Jesus. And I want to be deeply in love with my wife. And I want my kids to be walking with Jesus. That's what I want. I know, but like, where do you want to live? Frankly, I don't care. But don't you want to be set up financially for life? There's nothing wrong with planning. And I'm all for stewardship and planning and using God's resources wisely and planning for the future and things like that. But hey, look. If your faith is in your 401k, you're misplaced big time. You know why? Because our values aren't the same. 
We have to value spiritual things. We value the things that God, that God values. Haggai chapter one, verse number six speaks to our world to a T. You've sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a bag with holes. <laughs> this world craves more, 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 but it doesn't, not full with what it craves. It continually wants more, but it's not enough. and It has to get more. And I guess you could say the Christians the same in the fact that we crave Christ-likeness, and that's a never-ending journey, but we crave the things that are satisfactory. The more that I get of Jesus, the more that I'm satisfied with Jesus. But the more that you get of the things of this world, the less you'll be satisfied with the things that this world has to offer because you're a citizen of heaven. It's different. So we as citizens of heaven have a higher authority, we have a different value system, but we also, we love what Jesus loves. And by being a citizen of heaven, we no longer desire the things of this world, we desire the things of God, we want to be like Jesus, and so we want to love the things that Jesus loves. I have to confess, before I married my wife, I had never in my entire life ever eaten Panda Express. Like, I didn't even know what to get. And she was just like, orange chicken, you'll love it. I was like, what's in it? And she was like, chicken and lots of sugar. You got me a sugar. And so uh, never before. I'd never watched gymnastics or swimming before. I don't enjoy either one of those still, but I watch it because my wife is, was big time into it. Okay, we'll do it. But as I met my wife, the more that I loved my wife, I wanted to love the things that she loved. Uh, I've come to... Um, somewhat enjoy trips to Target now and then. Um, I never thought that was possible, but I think I do. Um, because it's something that my wife gets great joy and satisfaction out of. So great, I'll get great joy and satisfaction out of that as well. But as we love Jesus, we want to love the things that Jesus loves. So then we got to ask our question, self the question, what does Jesus love? First of all, Jesus loves the Word. Jesus is the Word, but he loved the Word. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness three times by the devil, three times he was tempted, three times the answer was Scripture. And Jesus went so far as to say this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That every bit of the Bible is good for you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's all breathed out by God. It's all good for you. And Jesus loves the word, so you should love the word too. And if you want to become a scholar or an expert on anything, I would highly encourage you to become a scholar and an expert on the Bible. You say, well, that'll take me the rest of my life. Good. Best investment you've ever made. Look, I know guys that can rattle off fantasy football stats like the back of their hand, and I don't get that. First of all, football is the most boring sport known to man. Save your hate mail for later. I'm not going to read it. <laughs> and can you call yourself an athlete when you weigh 400 pounds and you can't run five yards without being out of breath? Is that really an athlete? I don't know. Uh, but... That's a conversation for a different day. Uh, but uh, the idea of, of being, you know, so into sports that you, you, know, you can rattle off, you know, who did this or who did that. Hey, become a student of the Word of God. Become a student of the Bible. Immerse yourself in the Word. That'll change your life. And I'm not talking about just reading your Bible every day. Every Christian should do that. I'm not talking about becoming a student of the Word because Jesus loved the Word. Jesus was the Word. I want to know the Word. And here's a crazy thought. If I said to you, should we obey the Bible? I think everybody in the room here would say, yes, we should obey the Bible. Good. What does it say? 
Whatever it says, we'll do it. Good. What part of it is that? I'm not sure. But whatever it says, we do it. You got to know what it says to obey it, right? You got to know it. And so again, we got to go back to what does the word say? Jesus loved the word, so I want to love the word too. Next thing that Jesus loved, Jesus loved his church. The Bible says if the church doesn't belong to you and I, whenever we started Huikala, I filled out a lot of paperwork with the state of Hawaii, with the IRS to get us a 501c3 nonprofit, all that other stuff. My name's on a lot of legal paperwork, but I don't own anything. The church belongs to Jesus. Acts chapter 20, verse number 28, says that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Church belongs to Jesus 100%. And he loved it. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, that for husbands were to love our wives the way that Jesus loved his church and gave himself for it. So if the church is important to Jesus, the church should be important to you and I. And I'll go so far as to say this, and again, this might make somebody angry, but I stand by it 100%. This is not an opinion in the way that I feel about football. This is, this is a legitimate Bible truth. You cannot be a mature Christian without being connected to a local church. Cannot. And you say, well, I don't know about that. You know, I've got some, I got some people that know the Bible. I'm not talking about knowing the Bible. I'm talking about being a mature Christian. Because the Bible says that the church was given to us specifically for the perfecting or maturing of the saints. The church exists so that you and I can be more mature. And so to say that I don't have to be a part of a church and I can still be mature just goes to show how immature you are. And again, when people say things like, well, I can worship Jesus out in the middle of the ocean on a surfboard. And I'm for that. Please do. But that doesn't negate your need to be a part of corporate worship with the body of Christ. You, you can't be a mature Christian without the church. And here's the thing. If Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it, the least that you could do is be a part of it. If it's important to Jesus, it needs to be important to you. And so, Jesus loved the word. I want to love the word because I'm a citizen of heaven. Jesus loves the church. I want to love the church. Thirdly, Jesus loves people. I need to love people. I will confess to you, I've not always loved people. I'm an introvert by nature. I, I, it's, it's awkward for me. I'm, I'm socially awkward. Like, I'm, I'm just weird to be around. I, I admit that. I know that about myself. And because of that, I feel heightened senses of anxiety when I'm around people that I don't know or people that I'm not comfortable with. Uh, but here's the fact of the matter. I love people now. You take Anthony King 20 years ago, I didn't like people because I loved myself. What will people think about me? Will people realize after talking to me that I really am awkward and I'm weird? Will they say things about me later? They'll hurt my feelings. And what do people think about me? I want people to like me. So the best way for people to like me is to be the quiet, mysterious type. I'll just sit in the corner and brood. And then people will think that I'm really like complex and, and in touch with my emotions, but I'm really insensitive and awkward and insecure. Uh, but, uh, but, but I realized the focus was on the wrong thing. It was all about me. I don't want to talk to people because I'm concerned about what they'll think about me. I don't want to talk to people because they don't want to inconvenience me. I just want to do me and do my thing. And so, if you read the Bible, it'll blow up every problem that you think about yourself. And so, as I began to read the Bible, I realized that Jesus was always with people. Always. Go through the Gospels and count how many times you can find Jesus totally solo, 100% alone. 
Very, very difficult. Aside from when he was in the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. Aside from that, you can't give me a whole lot. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told the guys, hey guys, wait right here. I'm going to go pray for a while and I'll be right back. But the time that he wasn't with people, very few and far between throughout all of the, the Gospels. So I realized Jesus not only spent time with people, he loved people. So then I have this problem. I want to be like Jesus, but Jesus loves people. I want to be like Jesus, but I don't love people. So what should I do? I should change to be like Jesus. So here's what I did. I prayed and said, God, I don't love people. I love myself. Help me to love people. And you know the crazy thing about it is God gave me a heart to love people. Now, is it still awkward for me to talk to people? 100%. Do I still feel heightened senses of anxiety being around people that I don't know? Always. Every single Sunday, I feel a heightened sense of anxiety. Just talking with people. But I love people so much that I have to get over myself. Because Jesus loves people and I need to love people too. And whether it's your first time here at Huicala or your 10 millionth time here at Huicala, know this, you're loved here, I love you. And if you fill out one of those cards on your way in, I've got your name now, I'm gonna put you on my prayer list and I pray for you every day. If you attend at Huicala more than one time, I've got you on my prayer list and I pray for you every single day. And so, again, I do that because I love you, because Jesus loves you. And so, if I wanna be like Jesus, I gotta love the things that Jesus loves. I can't love the things that the world loves. I can't be impressed by those things. I wanna love the things that Jesus loves. So we have a higher authority, we have a different value system, we love what Jesus loves. If we're citizens of heaven, we're also loyal to Jesus. Philippians chapter three, verse number 19 tells us a list of people who weren't loyal to Jesus, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. They're all about themselves. They're disloyal to Jesus. It's kind of interesting to think that it's 2021 and we're getting ready for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Isn't that strange that like the Summer Olympics are coming this summer? Question for you. Who are you rooting for this year? USA, well, USA right? <laughs> but have you seen the, the, the Ukrainian weightlifting team? I mean, I might be pulling for them. You'd be like, uh, you can't do that if you're American, right? Have you seen the Chinese gymnastics? Those girls are no joke. I might be pulling for them in the gymnastics. The men's basketball, USA got beaten for only the third time in three decades last night in exhibition by Nigeria. Right? So I got Ukrainian weightlifting, I got the Chinese in women's gymnastics, and I'm pulling for Nigeria and, and basketball. I haven't looked at the rest of the brackets and rosters, but I'm going to figure it out. You'd say... That's crazy, man. You can't do that. Are you American or what, right? USA all the way. I know, but we're not as good as everybody else. It doesn't matter. We're Americans. We pull for Americans. Now, some of you who maybe have lived in other countries or something like that might be interested in, in other places and what their teams are doing and stuff like that, but we, like, opening ceremonies, like, bring out the American flag, right? We don't even think about cheering for other countries or pulling for other countries. Why? Because we're loyal based on what? Our citizenship. And when we think about our citizenship being in heaven, why is it interesting that we're willing to be so dyed in the wool, loyal to our country in sporting events, but we don't think twice about being disloyal to Jesus to be loyal to the world? Isn't that crazy? When it comes to whether or not I'm going to be loyal to Jesus, I've got to figure out what the world has to offer first, 
and then I'll figure out whether or not I'm going to be loyal to Jesus. And I'll try to see if there's a way I can do a little bit of both. No, you can't. You can't do a little bit of both. You know why? Because the Bible says that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Pick a side. We don't get to choose who we're loyal to if we're pulling for Jesus. We're loyal to him all the time. James 4.4, 4, again, ye adulterers and adulteresses know not that friendship with the world is, makes you an enemy of God. Whosoever will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. So again, you say, well, you know, I'll try out the world for a little bit, then I'll, I'll do the Jesus thing on the weekend. You will be sorely disappointed with your results because you're not loyal to anybody. So pick a side. If you're a citizen of heaven, be loyal to Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus has fed thousands of people. He's performing miracles left and right. He's got a following now at this point of thousands of people, thousands. But then he, he gets down to the nitty-gritty and says, hey, a lot of you folks are following me just because you're waiting for the next miracle, but I want to tell you this. You can't really come after me unless you're willing to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, I wasn't talking about in a physical sense. He was basically saying, you either want all of me or you want none of me. You don't get the, I want a little bit of doctrine and lots of miracles. You get the doctrine more than the miracles is what he was saying. He says, if you're not ready for that, then, then you're following the wrong guy. And John 6, 66 says, from that day forward, many of his disciples went away and walked with him no more. A lot of people said, pack it up, guys. Jesus was performing miracles, and that was fun for a while, but we're not into this whole, like, following him thing. And they left. You know why? Because they weren't loyal to Jesus. And Jesus turns around to his apostles and says to them, John chapter 6, 66 and 67, will you also go away? You guys going to leave too? And Peter, oh man. Peter, when you think of loyalty in the Bible, Peter's not in your top five, right? Think of disloyalty in the Bible, Peter would definitely make your top five. But here's what Peter says. Lord, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. <laughs> if we don't follow you, we got nowhere else to go. Because you have everything that matters. And Peter, in a shining moment of loyalty, said to Jesus, Jesus, if we're not following you, we don't have a plan B because you are it for us. Hey, who are you cheering for in the Olympics outside of the U.S.? I don't know. Are there other countries besides the United States? I don't know. If you're not following Jesus, who are you going to follow? The funny thing is, so many times Christians got a plan B in their back pocket. Well, Sunday mornings, if I don't go to church anymore, I got this, you know, group that meets over here at the Alamona Beach Park that does beach cleanup. I'll probably get in with them or I'd find something else to do. Maybe I'd just sleep in on Sundays and do an early brunch or something like that. Hey, look, if following Jesus just frees up your Sunday mornings, you're not following Jesus. Because for, for Peter and the other legitimate disciples, committed followers of Christ, if they didn't have Jesus, they didn't have anything. And so I want you to be loyal to Jesus because the world is going to offer you a smorgasbord of things you could choose besides Jesus. And you need to make up your mind ahead of time, I'm going to be loyal to Jesus. Count me in. I'm going to follow him. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 19 says this. It's funny. In the beginning of Who We Call uh, on Sunday nights, we started preaching through uh, books of the Bible. And so uh, when Who We Call was really new, we kind of taught through our core values for probably the first eight weeks or so. 
And then we got a little bit of traction, maybe 90 days in or so. I thought, I'm going to preach through a book of the Bible, but our church was really, really fragile during this time. I mean, financially, we were, we were like week to week on all of our bills. And like, I knew every week there were probably going to be at least 15 of us that showed up. Outside of that, I had no idea if anybody else would show up. So really, our church was brand new. I didn't know how long I was going to make it, so I thought, I'm going to preach through a book of the Bible, but I don't want it to be a long book, because if we don't get to finish, there'll be people hanging. I'm going to preach through the book of Philemon. <laughs> Philemon has one chapter. It's really short, and I knew we could get through that before everything fell apart, if it did. So we got through Philemon, and it's just like, all right, good. And so then I began to think, like, hey, what would be an encouragement to a new church? So I, I feel like we're going to make it. I feel like we got some traction. I feel like we got some, some wind in the sails. We got things going. What would be a good book to preach through? And I chose First John. You know, God is love, and, and the, it's talking about the love of God. How rich would that be? And I began to study and pray through that. It was good. And so, man, we're going to preach through 1 John. But then I got to reading through 1 John. Chapters 1 and 2 are blistering before you ever get to the whole God is love in chapter 3. Chapter 1 is just like, if you say that you don't sin, you're a liar and the truth of God is not in you. John chapter, 1 John chapter 2 Uh, Verse number 19 says this, speaking of those who walked away from the faith, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that it might be manifest that they were not all at all of us. (laughs) John says, oh yeah, those Christians who people call themselves Christians that aren't around anymore, you know why they left? To prove that they were never Christians to begin with. Wow, that's harsh. Yeah, that's what John says. That's what the Word of God says. And so what John's saying is, hey, if you're a legitimate Christian, you will continue in your faith. Uh, Last year there was a couple of, I hate using the term, but I'll use it anyways, celebrity pastors, quote celebrity pastors. And again, we never place pastors on pedestals. Pastors are men, that's it. Called of God to a position to lead the flock of God, to give them the Word, to shepherd, to guide, but never meant to be celebrities. But... People write books and become famous and speak at conferences and their head explodes and they swell with self-importance. Well, one pastor, author, incredibly self-important in his own mind, basically renounced his faith. Says, I don't really believe in God and I'm in the process of figuring life out, but I don't believe the Bible anymore. I don't believe in God and I don't know what that means for me or anything else like that. And so then questions come up, well, is the guy still saved? Well... If he was saved, then he would maintain his faith. Now, it wasn't a guy who said he had some doubts and was trying to figure it out. It's a guy who said he no longer believed the word. According to John, John's pretty clear. When they go out from us and say that they're not of us, it just proves that they never were part of us to begin with. So the majority of people that apostatize, I don't believe they were ever saved to begin with. But here's what I know. If you're a legitimate child of God, you don't get to just renounce your name. You're blood-bought bought with a price. You don't get to renounce your faith if you're a legitimate child of God. But John goes so far as to say this, hey, if you aren't loyal to Jesus, maybe you're not loyal to Jesus because you never were to begin with. And this is not to put doubt in your mind that, you know, if you're not acting good or behaving yourself, then you're probably not a Christian. John's just saying here, hey, you need to make sure that you know your faith well enough to know whether or not you're a child of God or not. And if we're citizens of heaven, we're loyal to Jesus at all costs. And those who maybe have come in and have gone out and are no longer walking with Jesus, no longer consider themselves Christians, maybe they're, they're right in the fact that they never were to begin with because they didn't lose their salvation, that's for sure. The loyalty to Jesus. Next, we have a different anticipation than what the world has. 
Let's take a look at verse number <coughs> 20. For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase we look for means await with eager anticipation. Like we're sitting like rubbing our hands going, oh, it's coming, it's coming. We're waiting for the Savior. When Angela and I had first gotten married again, those first few weeks of newlywed life, we got stationed out here in Hawaii. It was our first duty station as a married couple together. We got in military housing together, had this big house, and didn't know what to do with all the space that we had. And you know, I told her, I said, hey, you know, if you want to get a part-time job a little bit later, that's fine, but just make sure that we got everything covered here before you do that. And we're still waiting on our household good shipment and all that other stuff. And so I would go to the work during the day, and she would kind of uh, hang out and keep the house together. <laughs> and... Uh, one day I, I came home from work and, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm starving. What's for dinner? And she's like, oh, I haven't really given any thought yet. Let me, let me put some thought into what's for dinner. And oh, man, I made the mistake of asking a question. You never ask your wife who's been staying home all day. Does anybody know what the, the question is? What's the question? Somebody help me. What have you been doing all day? Like, I've been at work for 10 hours. I come home, there's no dinner. You haven't even thought about dinner? What have you been doing all day? Like sitting on the couch, watching Oprah, eating ice cream? Like what? Big mistake. Guys, if you've never asked that question, please don't ever ask it unless you want the closest thing to the wrath of God in your house because it's not a good question to ask. But, uh, you know, I came home and she was just like, I just didn't, I've been waiting for you to come home. I was like, what does that mean exactly? She was like, like I, I've been like waiting. Like every time a car drives down the street, I like, go to the window, like look, and like, is it you? And it's not you. And I'm just kind of like waiting, like looking at my watch. Like, when's he coming home? She was like, here, something sounds like a car pulled up in the driveway. I look, it's the mailman. She's like, oh, it's just the mailman. And she said, I've just been waiting for you to come home. And I thought to myself, my goodness, this is awesome. Uh, like, like me, like so I come in the home, like I walk in the door, and she like hugs me, and it's like I'm so glad you're here. She's like wow, this whole married thing's good. Uh, and here's the thing, to this day, I still get excited when she comes home. She still gets excited when I come home. Now it's usually a text that I get saying, "I went to Target, can you help?" And I know what that means. I got to pull in all the bags, but uh, I still get excited when I see her. Yeah, I get to unload the car with her. And guys, when you carry in the bags from Target, how many trips do you make? Only one. I don't care how many bags you got. I got bags lined up my arms, both arms like this. I've got a carabiner that I clip bags on sometimes because I refuse to make two trips. One trip and one trip only. But I love it. My wife's home. When it's talking about looking for the Savior, it's that same eager anticipation. Like, man, Jesus is coming. Like, Jesus could come back tonight. Are you ready? Like, I'm ready. You might say, oh, not that pumped up about it. No, we should be. Because if our citizenship is in heaven, we realize that all that we have here is just a, a fake imitation of what life should be. We're getting ready to see what life is when we actually get to heaven. I can't wait for that. That's going to be awesome. Can you imagine what it will be like to see Jesus like in person? I can't fathom that. Like The things that I want to say to Jesus when I see him. Like, how do you express the gratitude to someone who gave their life on your behalf that you might have eternal life? I don't, I don't know how to express that, but I'm looking forward to it. Could be tonight, could be this afternoon, could be tomorrow morning, I don't know, but I'm ready. I can't wait. 
I'm not scared. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed. I'm ready. That's what it means to be looking for the Savior. And oftentimes I look back in my life and I, I have to admit, I haven't always been ready like that. You know why? Because there's been sin in my life. Because I'm ashamed of the things that I've been doing. Ashamed of the way that I've been living. Ashamed of my lack of love for the Lord. Ashamed for a terrible walk with Jesus or no, no time spent with Jesus in the Word. Horrible prayer life. All those things that cause me to, uh, if I see him, it'll be all right, but I'm not really excited. No. When our citizenship is in heaven, when we value the things that Jesus values, when we love the things that Jesus loves, we're excited about seeing our Savior face to face. What a day that'll be. And man, I, I lost my voice this morning singing those songs. But man, can you imagine gathering together with millions of Christians throughout all of world history in the throne room of God singing praises to the Lamb who has overcome? Like, hello! That's even better than any concert I've ever been to, that's for sure. I'm looking forward to that. We have a different anticipation. Here's the other awesome thing. We have a different hope. What this world has to offer as, quote, hope, not really hope at all. Our world's vocabulary even uses the word hope as a synonym for wish. Well, I hope there's no traffic on the way to work on Monday. I hope I get to get off work a little bit early on Friday. I hope dinner's ready by the time I get home. I hope there's not a long line at the restaurant. I hope the grocery store has what I need. We use the word hope and wish synonymously. When the Bible speaks of hope, it never speaks in the terms of a wish. When the Bible uses the word hope, it means a confident expectation based on the character of God and the promises of his word. If God says something is true, then it is, and that is my hope. A confident expectation based on the character of God and the promises of his word. So in verse number 21 in our passage, when it says, for who shall change our vile body, that it shall be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's able to subdue all things unto himself. <laughs> One of these days, this old wretched body that I have that is sin sick, that is flawed, that is limited, will one day be changed into a glorified body like Jesus is. What is that going to look like? I don't know. But I know that it will be without sin. I know that it will be without flaw. I know that it will be perfect, and I know that it will last for all of eternity. And that's my hope. My hope is that the aches and pains that I woke up with this morning will not last forever. That it, should I get any type of sickness or disease, it will not last forever. It might take my life, but that's only the beginning of my life because I have eternal life and I'll have a glorified body with Jesus Christ. And that is my hope. Not a wish. It's a confident expectation. I know for a fact that heaven is my home. I know for a fact that I will have a glorified body, not because I'm a good person, not because I go to church, but because Jesus Christ has saved me and I am now a citizen of heaven. I have a different hope. I have a different expectation. Next, this world is just a stopover to my final destination. This isn't the end. This is just the beginning. And this world isn't my home, it's just a stopover. 
I don't know if we used to sing a song when I was a kid. It was a catchy song. It was peppy, and you could clap along to it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. How many of you know that song? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Hey, I like it. World's not my home, just passing through. Can't feel at home here because heaven's my home. But then it gets to the chorus, and the chorus for me, even as a kid, was, was problematic. And the more that, as a pastor and as a mature, mature Christian, I realized the chorus is incredibly problematic. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, oh, Lord, what will I do? What? <laughs> if heaven's not my home, what will I do? I will endure the wrath of God and his judgment for all of eternity in a Christless hell. That, what kind of question is that? And so, because of that, I, the whole song is just weird to me. But I love the first verse of it. This world's not my home, I'm just passing through. This was never meant to be the, the end for us. It was meant to be the beginning. I've never actually visited Japan before. I've flown through the Narita Airport in Japan twice. Once on the way to Guam and once on the way to Malaysia. And I don't know a lot about Japan, but their bathroom's got it going on, right? You go to like wash your hands in the, the, the bathroom, and inside the bowl, over here is the soap, over here is the water, and over here is the dryer. I never even have to pull my hands out, right? It's just, oh, this is awesome. Like, who thought this? Or this is genius. Although I was a little bit curious, I went in the, the, the bathroom stall, and there's a big sign on the side, like big like poster size in the airport, it shows a guy standing up on the seat of a toilet with a big circle and an X through it. Like, don't stand up on the toilet. And I think to myself, who in the world would stand up on a toilet seat and think that that's normal? But they had to put a sign up tell you not to do that. Well, I found out when I went to Malaysia and I realized they don't have toilet seats. They just got a hole in the bottom of the floor and like a rubber hose. Like, what kind of bathroom is that? And then they said, don't stand on the toilet seat. Oh, okay. But I don't know a lot about Japan other than what I've seen going through the airport. Here's the thing. We weren't supposed to know a lot about this world because this is just a stopover. That's why the Bible says we should be simple concerning the things that are evil, the things of this world. I don't need to know how the world runs because this isn't my home. I'm just passing through. This is just a stopover on my way to a final destination. My hope is in heaven. My final resting place is in heaven. This is just a stopover. And when we become citizens of heaven, when we're adopted into the family of God, when we trust Jesus Christ as Savior and we become children of God, we don't get dual citizenship at that point. We get our passport replaced. And we don't have dual citizenship with this world and in heaven. We got heavenly citizenship and a working visa is all we got. You're just left here to work. You're not here to live and make your life you're here to get the work done. That's the only reason you've been left here is because you have a job to complete. Go, win, baptize, teach. Tell other people about the kingdom. Bring other people into our heavenly home. That's it. You're not left here to get a big house, buy a boat, spend a couple of weeks fishing every summer. Nothing wrong with enjoying life. I hope you get to enjoy life. But if you think that's all life is, you missed it. If you think the whole goal of life is to amass a, of, a massive amount of wealth only to retire and kick back and relax, that's not this life because this isn't the end. This is the beginning. And look, my goal is not to win according to the world's scorecard because my, this world is not my home. Heaven is. 
I want to win according to God's scorecard. Three final thoughts and we're done, I promise. First of all, live like this life is temporary because it is. Again, I hope you're a good steward of what God gives you. I hope that you stay away from credit card debt. I hope you're able to save for retirement. I hope you don't have to work 50-hour shifts until the day that you die. I hope you plan ahead. I hope you're wise with what God's given you and you steward it well. I want you to enjoy the things that God's given you, enjoy the blessings that God's given you. But again, this is not the end. This is only the beginning. If you're just living for this life, you're very short-sighted. I want to live with eternity in mind. I want you to think about the day that you stand eyeball to eyeball with God the Father, and he says, hey, let me take a look at your life and see what you did. And I want you to be able to stand there saying, hey, I know it wasn't perfect, but I did did my best every day. Hey, I know I didn't knock it out of the park every time, but I swung for the fences and I got a base hit every day. Not perfect, but I did my best. I don't want you to stand there with your hands in your pockets going, I totally wasted my entire life living for myself and living for the world, and I got nothing to show for it today. I don't want that to be you. I want you to stand before God one day with joy because you invested your life well as a citizen of heaven. Next, live like, live like eternity lasts forever because it does. If you were to draw a timeline of time, you have eternity past, eternity future, God is always there in both places. You and I have a definite beginning in our life. And then from our life when we die, on is eternity. And on that timeline, here's what the Bible says. Life is just a vapor. It appears for a time and then vanisheth away. But what lasts forever? Eternity does. So live like it. Live like eternity is the big deal, and this life is just really short. And what that means is that I've got to make sure that I'm where I need to be in my walk with Jesus. I've got to make sure that the treasure that I have is treasure that's laid up in heaven. I've got to make sure that I'm leading my wife well, that I'm leading my children well, that my children love Jesus, that my children know Jesus, that my children want to obey Jesus. I've got to bring as many people with me on this journey as I can. I'm going to tell my friends, family, co-workers about the gospel and how they can know Jesus, how they can be born again, and how their life can be changed by the power of God's word. I want to get plugged into a solid community of believers that I can grow with together, that I can have their back and they can have mine. Because eternity lasts forever. That's the real stuff. I don't want to work three jobs trying to buy a house that I can't afford and drive a car that I don't even own and not have enough time to drive it because I'm working three jobs to pay for the stupid car. Come on. Let the world do that. We're citizens of heaven. No matter if you ride a bicycle. Here's the thing about our church. One of the things I love about our church, you know what I love about it? 101 things, but one of the things I really love about it, we don't have a parking lot. And if I had to like list every person in our church and what kind of car they drove, I'd just be guessing. Like, I don't know if you drive a minivan or if you drive a, a Corvette. I have no idea. And frankly, I don't care. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. Eternity matters. Live for that. Final thought. Ensure your priorities align with the kingdom which you claim. You claim to be a Christian, live like it. Make sure your priorities line up with that. If you're a citizen of heaven, live like a citizen of heaven. Don't claim to be a Christian and not live like a Christian. That just hurts everybody. Don't claim to be a follower of Christ and your God is your belly and you desire earthly things. That just hurts everybody. 
There's a great quote by a pastor who said this, the more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and her maxims, the more her true testimony is for Christ, and the more potent her witness against sin. We're sent in this world to testify against evils, but if we dabble in them ourselves, where is our testimony? If we ourselves be found faulty, we're false witnesses and we're not sin of God. Our testimonies have none effect. Here's what he says. I do not hesitate to say there are tens of thousands of professing Christians whose testimony before the world is rather injurious than beneficial. And he said that Charles Spurgeon 100 years ago. How much more true do you think that is today? That there are Christians who name the name of Christ that actually hurt more than they help. Let that not be said of us. Again, our church is not full of perfect Christians. Our church is full of Christians who need God's grace every day. But let's not put on a facade and a fake that we're, we're, oh, we're followers of Christ and not live like it, live like it. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, there's never been a time, a date, a place in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior. Let today be that day and then you can get a brand new passport as a citizen of heaven. You'll be put on a work visa for the rest of your life to bring as many people with you to the kingdom as possible. But for those of us that are Christians, it's time that we start living like it. And if you are, continue. If not, let's fix that today. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.